Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode two of the Let's Talk Government podcast. Today we are going to talk about protests, riots, and outlaw citizenship. I am joined by Dr. Amelia Pridemore from the Minnesota State University Mankato Political Science Program and her Political Science 271 State and Local Government class. We're doing this podcast in a little bit different format and it will include participation from the class if they have questions or feel appropriate. I'm holding this conversation with Dr. Pridemore in my capacity as a professor in our law enforcement program and also based on my experience as a police officer and sergeant for 17 years in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dr. Amelia Pridemore is in her second year as an assistant professor of political science at Minnesota State University, Mankato. She has served as a journalist before pursuing her PhD, and she studies public administration and outlaw citizenship as part of her research. So thank you for joining me today. So Dr. Pridemore, Amelia, what is outlaw citizenship? Well, outlaw citizenship is basically non-traditional citizen participation, such as protests and online organizing and versus more traditional citizen participation like voting or speaking at a, a government organized public hearing. Um, some of the key points about it is that um, it's often done by those who go unheard for real or perceived reasons um, in the social and political dialogue. Um, and it's one of the key points I always tell people when it comes to outlaw citizenship is you should have seen it coming. Um, what happens is, is outlaw citizenship is never spontaneous. Um, it's rather, it's a building and building and building of a lot of longtime grievances. And basically what happens is, is there's generally a major event such as a police shooting um, that basically triggers a reaction such as a protest. Sometimes, uh, sometimes they're violent, sometimes they're not. But nonetheless, the big, uh, the big key point is you should have seen it coming. Don't be shocked when things build and build and build and you know it's building and then there's a reaction and a very strong one quite often. So we, talk, we see that there are protests and we see that that obviously is a part of outlaw citizenship. So how is those participating in outlaw citizenship different than what we know as anarchist? Do you know? It's, um, it's, it's actually a lot of times with, with, if you're talking about say an anarchist, um, a lot of what they're doing is outlaw citizenship too. Likewise, somebody having a calm, peaceful, legally uh, recognized, maybe even permitted um, protest on a sidewalk where somebody's just holding a sign, um, mm -hmm. that's outlaw citizenship too. It has so many different dimensions um, in terms of violence or lack thereof, 
legality and the lack thereof. And one another key point is overall social acceptance or the lack thereof. And none of those are, um, none of those fit into a perfect box. There's a lot that, of outlaw citizenship activities that are considered, Ill, that, are, that are definitely illegal, but are nonviolent. There are some who, um, some who engage in, say, property damage, and they're considered heroes, even for something violent, case in point, the Stonewall Riots, which was considered the precursor to the LGBT rights movement. Um, sometimes also something legal and nonviolent is considered socially reprehensible. Um, big example of that is Westboro Baptist Church and some of the protests they have done uh, for, say, uh, soldiers killed in the Iraq War or um, hate crime victims or um, others who were in very tragic high profile deaths. Um, case in point in my home state of West Virginia, they came to protest a memorial for miners killed in uh, the Sago mine disaster, holding up signs saying miners in hell. That was a legal protest. It was non-violent as in physically non-violent, but nonetheless, it was considered highly reprehensible. You're right. And actually, those two examples are really good because they kind of also flip to the question of why do we allow that type of protesting? Uh, the Westboro Church is notorious for holding up really derogatory and vicious signs, hateful signs, such as uh, go, standing outside a veteran's funeral saying um, he deserved to die or she deserved to die for doing for protecting your country. And law enforcement will get the question of why do you let that happen? And this is where we get into our constitution, right? We have the right for freedom of speech and we have the right for a lawful public assembly. And the framers of our constitution were very deliberate to not identify what was freedom of speech or what kind of speech um, was protected. So pretty much everything is protected um, unless it's gonna cause a panic or injury. That's why you can't yell the fire in the movie theater. But otherwise, even our Supreme Court has been wide open on that. So even though you look at those signs and you listen to the chants that like happened with Westboro and other ones, law enforcement can't stop it because then we would be violating their constitutional rights. Now, I know the argument comes up, well, what about the constitutional rights of the victim's families? Um, unfortunately, there's nothing in our constitution that protects you from hearing things you don't wanna hear. So that, that's very hard, right? So that's a good point though, about there sometimes people that are doing outlaw citizenship could be anarchists, right? But does everybody that participates in outlaw citizenship have some sort of ideology or social um, idea that they are trying to promote? Um, technically speaking, as outlaw citizenship is defined, um, if somebody is actually engaging uh, let's just put it this way. There's a difference between visibly engaging a lot of times versus actually being an outlaw citizenship um, in, in my view, outlaw citizen in my view. If a person is coming to say a protest, uh, whether that, whether they're engaging in holding a sign or setting things on fire, um, but they're doing so in the name of the cause that they're trying to promote 
And one thing I also want to note about outlaw citizenship that I want to make sure to mention, one key difference between uh, outlaw citizenship in terms of citizen participation as a whole, one of the goals is to not work with government, but rather to work against government to um, try to end policies that they believe is unjust. So if you're actually participating in the name of doing that, right, um, then that's, that's, um, that's one thing. But if you're showing up there to either A, um, either A, you know, because uh, you think that burning things are fun and... <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's a perfect cover of First Amendment rights or you um, or likewise. And, and this has happened to uh, this has happened particularly in Kenosha, uh, Portland. Um, some have shown up to be an outlaw citizen against the outlaw citizenship with these counter pro uh, protests. Um, there's also been accusations that some who have participated in these protests and done violent acts have done so just to make the others look bad. Um, so in my view, the, uh, especially the ones who just show up because they think it's fun to vandalize or they want to, or they're doing this to undermine the image of the uh, outlaw citizens. I, it's in my view that no, they're not engaging in outlaw citizenship. They're just causing trouble. So then when we see video on the media of the people that are breaking in the front door of the Target and like leaving with shopping carts full of goods, they're really not participating in outlaw citizenship. They're, they're looting, right? Well, it actually looting has, um, has some political roots as well. Um, so there was, uh, so there was an article I was reading about uh, riots and how even though riots, which it can include activities such as looting, um, do have a political purpose as well. What happens a lot of times with something that really goes out of control, like riots, um, with, um, when it comes to something like riots, um, it may just look totally disorganized, people just running around, breaking things. But the thing is, is a lot of times what happens, remember it's a lot of historically disenfranchised groups who, um, who participate in such. Um, a lot of times their problems are so deep and longstanding and complex that a lot of times those who participate really don't even know where to start. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times too, when it comes to looting, uh, yeah, somebody might be wanting uh, a big screen TV um, and you know, kind of like the people who think it's fun to burn things, right? Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times looting is seen as, uh, as a political purpose because I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I've been constantly deprived no matter how hard I work. You know what? I'm going to take from the rich, kind of like, um, like a Robin Hood point of view. Is it necessarily right? No, but there, there's, there's a reason behind it. But again, it takes nuance. So many ways it takes nuance. We have a question here. Um, yeah, I was just looking at that. So the question is, wouldn't anarchism be considered a political ideology? That's a good question here. Um, I just want to read the rest of the comments because we'll be able to. So I would first say, as Dr. Pridemore is reading the rest of the comment there, it really depends on your definition of anarchist and what you're looking at their involvement at the time. 
Um, when we look at terrorism and political violence, there's usually some sort of social ideology, social change or political change you want to have occur with your actions. And if you're anarchists, if they come in and they're going to be destroying property uh, because that is how they want to get their point across and they have that ideology, you're right. I think they do fall into that political ideology. Um, and I'm going to let Dr. Pridemore answer in a second, but, but when you run into anarchists that are there just because they know that they can break property and they don't share any ideology with anybody, um, that's where I think we get out of bounds uh, a little bit. So what do you think, Amelia? Uh, well, kind of like what Liza said here, um, you know, when it comes to um, his, his, uh, his comment here, civil unrest is the only real powerful tool that a citizen has to pressure the state. A lot of times when it comes to people who engage in outlaw citizenship, um, the reason why they may break the windows out and target and, and totally trash the place um, and, and loot um, may be that I've tried getting their attention. I've tried getting the, the government's attention over and over and over again. Um, I've held up a sign, didn't work. I broke out a window, um, you know, just here and there. That didn't work. Okay. Well, I'm really going to up the ante now. And that's when you, uh, that's when you oftentimes run into, you know, burning down of buildings um, or, or, um, you know, beating up somebody in the streets, uh, particularly when you do some serious property damage um, or, um, you know, something, something particularly destructive. Because a lot of times that's, it, a lot of times participants in outlaw citizenship believe that that's the only way they're going to get attention and, and maybe they're right in doing so. Uh, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that, that is, that's, that is the only way they're going to get attention. So, uh, well, if I'm going to be heard, this is what I got to do. You know, from the law enforcement perspective, um, and I'm not talking about riots or protests that come off of an incident. I'm talking this, this, this framework is like a planned events, like the Republican National Convention, the Democratic National Convention, um, the WTO, the World Trade Organization meetings that they have that law enforcement prepares for those because of the anarchists. Um, you prepare for your protest, your, your peaceful demonstrations, you know that's going to happen and that's fine. We do that to make sure people are safe. We give them a spot to do that where they can't be run over by cars, right? Um, but we also prepare for the anarchists, which is why you see the, uh, the 50 officers sitting in the background waiting for something to happen because if they come, we have to be able to respond to it. Uh, I was part of the Republican National Convention. Um, St. Paul, they started having, they had a peaceful protest going and a march that was being escorted. They got to shut down the freeway. And then suddenly down in downtown St. Paul, we had a group of six anarchists dressed completely in black, start breaking out the big store windows. And then they took off running. And so that's probably where it's harder for law enforcement to get your head around anarchy being part of the outlaw citizenship because you expect to have a message to go along with that damage to property, right? We never figured out what their purpose was. Were they protesting the Republicans? Were they protesting the big business in downtown St. Paul? And nobody really understood what that was from. So from the logical point of view, it's just like, well, why did they do it? You know, 
where with, with the George Floyd protests and riots and burning down the third precinct, you can see that direct connection. So I think that's sometimes where our confusion comes in. And also, too, with public opinion as well. Um, and technically, this it, it actually was uh, quite the difference between um, property destruction. Um, so in Portland, um, we're not talking about the Portland protest. Uh, this was just a few years. This was a few years ago. Um, Portland had a huge problem with potholes. And the citizens as a whole believed that their government was doing absolutely nothing about it. And so a group of anarchists uh, got together and did um, unauthorized DYI pothole patching um, throughout the city and, you know, complete in their anarchist gear, the whole nine yards. And, and so, um, so some people thought this, uh, some people in the media thought this was, uh, this was rather strange. Um, so they, inter but the thing was they interviewed the anarchists, um, unlike the, unlike the, um, unlike some of the, um, you know, the anarchists who just broke out the windows, but nobody knew why. Well, these anarchists explained why they were doing this. And, and what happened was, um, in Portland, as well as New Orleans, which has notoriously bad street repair problems, um, so people started joining they thought, well, great, you know, if the government's not going to fix my potholes, I'm going to do it too. So here we had a group of anarchists, once they stated their cause, even though, yes, what they were doing was totally illegal, people joined them. <laughs> Maybe they didn't join anarchism, but they saw a common thread with what the anarchists were doing. Well, I'm going to get rid of these potholes too. So would you say that kind of a distinction between those that are just participating in outlaw citizenship and those who are anarchists, which is a form of outlaw citizenship, is that the if you're truly an anarchist, you don't want government, right? You most of the the philosophy behind anarchism is that we don't want the government. The government is the problem. We should be able to kind of regulate our own behaviors and the behaviors of our neighbors should all be just done at the individual or family level. Is that fair to say? I would say so, yeah. And that's actually some of the reasoning behind uh, what some of the uh, Port Portland anarchy pothole repairers were, <laughs> were, uh, were saying. You know, the state, uh, the state doesn't need to get involved. We as citizens should just take care of ourselves. And in, in their case, they fix the potholes. Right. So it's interesting. It would always be interesting to me to find out if those that are are deemed or labeled anarchists are truly following the anarchy ideology uh, or if they are really kind of riding that line between anarchy and outlaw citizenship where they still want the government but they want it to change that type of thing that's always interesting yeah it's 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 um like i said sometimes it's um sometimes it's just it's it's like i said there's just so much nuance that you have to look at without law citizenship and no one and and, and i'm not talking about just activity whether you're you know like i said standing with a sign or burning things um even when you're comparing those two actions um still yet you got to factor in intent who's doing it um why they're doing it and kind of kind of i guess you could say crunch the numbers per se um to really make a determination of you know what's going on here <laughs> and is this justifiable legally or, or socially. And there's a big difference between those two. 
like, right. like we mentioned. Yeah, like legally, if you look at it, um, you're legally allowed to do protests because a protest by definition is, is literally gathering a group of people and verbally or with signs, um, getting your point across where it turns into a riot just by a legal definition is when you have a gathering of three or more people committing crimes. So that's where your property damage, your arson, um, your thefts come in. That's when it turns into a riot. So why don't we arrest everybody in a riot? Do you know how many officers it would take? That's why when you see that they're only arresting strategic people in a riot, that's because they're trying to pick out the ones that are actually causing issues. So, so outlaw citizenship, what's one of our probably most historical examples of outlaw citizenship that your students here would recognize when you talk about it? What do you think? Probably, probably in, in you know, when it comes to current events, it's definitely the George Floyd protests. Mm -hmm. um, I would say probably bef uh, the Black Lives Matter protests are um, even even before George Floyd probably would uh, would rank towards the top. Um, also, some of the uh, the women's march. Now, yes, this uh, most of those were legally permitted, but still, yet the women's march in 2017. Uh, which was literally everywhere in the world. Um, I mean, even even there were quote unquote sister marches, um, even in even in um, cities outside the United States. Those uh, those were definitely uh, part of that. And I think even with especially with the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, again, there's so many, uh, there were, if you look at all the nuances there, but one thing I thought of, especially again, with the Black Lives Matter protests, one criticism of law enforcement has been, um, has been the excessive force that a lot of people feel is, has been used on the protesters. And one thing that, um, a student mentioned to me yesterday in the same class, um, the use of the military, the federal troops um, in the uh, removal of protesters in DC, which is, which was rather unprecedented. Yeah, actually that was unprecedented and actually uh, calling in the National Guard here in Minneapolis over the summer was uh, fairly unprecedented as well. They haven't done that in a long time. There is a fuzzy line that we try not to cross in involving military in our own domestic issues here uh, in the United States because uh, then we are going back to the 60s and 70s where you brought in National Guard and military um, like at Kent State and during the civil rights marches. Uh, it has been decision-making based on public administration and you know society standards to not use the military. We actually, with the Black Lives Matter and the law enforcement side, you're getting two different um, narratives. There is the excessive force. You know, when do you start using excessive force? What is excessive force? Um, using the rubber bullets, the crowd control techniques. And then on the other side, you also hear complaints like when we were having the I-94 protests and the marching along I-94 of, well, why did they let them do that for so long and shut down the freeway? There is no magic formula to find the perfect balance between cr crowd control and letting people express their, um, their concerns. And when you start using um, less, less lethal techniques, um, we in the United States have not seen much for like Molotov cocktails and fires during protests. But if you look at Europe and Canada and 
uh, Asia, there is a lot of fire involved. So I, I hope we stay that way. But that's why you'll start seeing them using water cannons and other things that are that are used. So in, in the comments here, do we have something else that we... Yes. Uh, yes, this is from Life again. Um, grouping. So yeah, it's... Um, uh, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go, go ahead. I'm going to finish reading the comment here. Okay. Um, well, you know, it's, um, you know, it may seem confusing, but it, it's, and, and that's the thing that we often see when it comes to public policy and when it comes to social movements, period. Um, nothing fits in a perfect box. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever does. Um, one thing that I teach a lot, for example, is uh, social construction theory, which does fa uh, factor into outlaw citizenship. And basically what that means is, um, is, um, is something, uh, something that is uh, basically when it, co it comes to, it's groups of people in terms of their level of power and their level of how well they're regarded, how well people like them. And there's basically four boxes according to this theory. One is powerful and well-liked, and then powerful but not well-liked. And then down here, well-liked but not powerful, and then no power and not well-liked. For example, one that's in that low category is say sex offenders. Um, oftentimes flag burners, um, communists are put in uh, that category too. And then in kind of the upper echelon, you have, um, say, veterans, the elderly. And what happens under this theory is that public policy, and you could probably count, you know, perceived, um, you know, police reactions um, as one of those pub public policy outcomes, um, as being the result of a group's social construction in terms of power and likability. But yet, you, you remember uh, I said boxes, right? When we had this discussion last spring in one of my classes about social construction, some people said, well, there's this group that's well-liked, but what about the subgroup within it? Um, like, for example, one group that often gets slammed a lot is lawyers. Well, are you talking about, you know, the Atticus Finch, you know, fight for the underdog type of lawyer? Or are you talking about, you know, your, um, you know, people like Michael Cohen, for example, who's been slammed even by his ex-employer now, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, who, who are we talking about? even after we put them in one of those four little boxes. So a lot of times with outlaw citizenship, you know, when, you know, determining whether or not they're good or bad is once again, trying to put things in a box when you really can't. And I'll just add on to that. Remember who writes our narratives? It's usually the people that are in power. And you wouldn't have outlaw citizenship if everybody shared power equally. So the outlaw citizenship is automatically going to be a negative narrative because they want change from the established power. But if you think about how that changes over time, somebody who is considered an outlaw citizen today in 10 years may no longer be an outlaw citizen because they, the ideology they wanted is now the ideology that's in power. 
think back to the protests against the Vietnam War, right? So the ones that were protesting against the Vietnam War were considered the outlaw citizens because that's why they wanted that change. They thought it was an unjust war. If we look now, who is in power in the House and Senate in the, at the United States level or even at the state level, I can guarantee you people that were protesting the Vietnam War are now in power. They are not considered outlaw citizens anymore. They still got what they wanted by doing their protests. So it does change. I mean, look at our original outlaw citizens. All of the, the people that lived here in the United States before it was the United States were sent here because they were outlaw citizens. The Boston Tea Party outlaw citizenship. So I would not inherently say it's good or bad, but it's not going to be aligned with the current power structure because otherwise why would we why would they want something to change and this is great because it leads right into shannon's question um, about do you think civil unrest really is the only powerful tool a citizen has to pressure the state and i actually think amelia and i are going to agree on this because i say yes right because if um, they well let's go what do you think amelia Really, to be quite honest with you, when it comes to certain, you know, again, historically disenfranchised groups, a lot of times, yes, because um, because so many uh, systems, particularly you mentioned uh, what's interesting, you mentioned Vietnam, right? Well, in uh, so trust in government after Vietnam absolutely plummeted. The only time it ever recovered, and this was rel this was very brief, was in the direct aftermath of 9-11. Mm -hmm. Trust in government never recovered after Vietnam. Um, so what happened was, particularly in the public administration uh, field, the bureaucracy, um, there was a push for greater citizen voice in public policymaking. That's why you see a lot of these public hearings, regulatory comment periods. Um, but the problem is a lot of them still yet... Uh, did two things. First of all, a lot of people saw it as, as a figurative bread and circuses. Um, you know, hey, we're just going to placate you a little bit and, you know, make you feel like you had a voice, but we're just, we're just going to do what we want anyway. Um, and a lot of times too, even if say that, that did move the needle, a lot of these uh, methods of being able to participate were actually making things worse in terms of social inequality because like say you talk, uh, say public hearings for example right if one is at four o'clock in the afternoon how many people especially those who work maybe second shift can make it to that right well mm -hmm. ver uh, think of who can a lot of times that is a wealthier class and what happens as a result, now this is providing that the bureaucracy is actually listening to them, but what happens as a result, a lot of times public policies that are adopted are the preferred policies of those who are able to make it, which is generally a power, more powerful, wealthier, wider group. So when you have those outcomes happening over and over and over again, and you literally cannot access the means to where you can move the needle to, what can you do? What else can you do? And for a lot of people, that answer is civil unrest. And I would totally agree with that, especially look at the civil rights movement. If they had not demonstrated and protested and marched 
do we think the change that took place in the 60s would have taken place? And if so, why hasn't that change carried on? Why do we still need to have the Black Lives Matters protests? Why do we still need to be protesting systemic racism? Why do we still need to be protesting law enforcement and community relations? Because if we don't have those people stepping up, protesting, making sure their voice is heard, there is not going to be a change. We know that the public administration, the bureaucracy, voting in the United States, if you want to run for office, you have to have money to do it, right? But we shouldn't have to have just money to make changes in our society as well. So yes, Shannon, I would say yes, that is how they get their voice heard. And if they don't start with the protesting, their voice isn't going to be heard. I mean, you can put a video up on YouTube. That's great. And there's a lot of great ideology on YouTube, but unless somebody's following you, nobody's going to see that. If you are in the middle of the street in Minneapolis protesting the death of a man uh, while well, the police were there, you are going to get hurt and you're going to get that airtime. So it's kind of like a catch-22. You know, you want your ideology to come out and you may not necessarily want to be out protesting or have things leading to damage, but if that doesn't happen, then your ideology is not going to be hurt. It really is a weird catch-22. And I will say that many law enforcement officers feel the same way, feel that they are agree with the things that are happening with Black Lives Matter. They agree that there's systemic racism. They agree that people should have civil rights. But when they're out in their riot gear on the line, you have to be apolitical. You have to be neutral. So even if you agree with them, you can't tell them that. You know, When you see pictures of people walking up and talking to them and giving them flowers, and you might be going, well, why aren't they talking back? It's because in their position, they have to remain neutral. Although neutral is a, an, an agent of the state at that point, which may not be neutral, but that's a conversation for a completely different day. So great question. Yeah, and the same goes for, you know, you mentioned neutrality. Um, now, not all follow this, um, but, in, uh, but when you are an on the ground reporter in the media, um, same deal when it comes to neutrality. You're supposed to, now it's, it's not, um, you're not legally bound as a police officer would be, but you're supposed to, you know, be just the facts, right? And um, even if you totally agree or totally disagree with what is going on too. Um, one, one example of, of the latter, um, I'll give you two of them actually, um, and one involved law enforcement. Um, before my tenure at my last employer, um, the KKK did a rally in the middle of uh, one of the towns in our coverage area. Um, and, you know, this was a huge rally involving a hate group. Um, we, you know, there were counter protests, whatnot. We, um, my employer had to cover it. Um, one extraordinarily, I wish I had it with me, one extraordinarily powerful photo that one of my colleagues took at that time was, um, was the Klansmen in the background with their white hoods on and the police officer from the West Virginia State Police, um, who was basically in charge of the security detail, standing with his arms crossed, and you could, you could just tell in his face that he was disgusted by it. He was black. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, the trooper that was uh, in charge of, of making sure that the Ku Klux Klan was protected because inevitably a lot of people are going to get upset at what they do. He was, he was a black police officer and he's having to, like uh, Dr. Nelson said, um, you know, objectively do his job and protect this group regardless of what he thinks. And he's a black man having to uh, protect the KKK. Um, we, and then myself as a reporter, um, now this interview was not published. Um, so back to Westboro again, I interviewed Fred Phelps, the founder of Westboro Baptist Church during uh, my time there. And I can tell you, I was having to just hold back the whole time personally because everything he said just was absolute bile and and I just kept my cool and but I made sure to also ask him follow-up questions at the same time you know I I challenged him in my own way because I would see discrepancies all the time in what he was saying and I uh, so you know I came at him with follow-ups and I didn't, I didn't just let him spout, but in terms of my saying, no, you are, I couldn't do it by the, by the standards of the job I had. Now, you know, there's the editorial page where, you know, the editorial board can absolutely rip them to pieces, mm -hmm. but by the standards of my job, I still had to, um, as some uh, reporters have done when they've covered Westboro, the KKK, um, some of the neo-Nazi rallies, outright rallies that were that we've seen in recent years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of that there, there, there's a common thread with law enforcement in that too. Yeah. Well, we are out of time here, so thank you so much, uh, Dr. Pridemore, and the great questions from the class. And I'm sure we can pick this topic up again and spend lots more time on it. But I wanted to thank you for your time today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash Let's Talk Gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.